Buongiorno, benvenuto, hello and welcome. Welcome to episode four of City Breaks Florence, in which we're going to think about Dante. So the one of the most famous uh, people across the centuries to have come from Florence, somebody who's remembered across the city in various ways that we'll have a look at, and the man who made such a major contribution to medieval European literature. So I wanted to start the episode by just mentioning one or two places where you can find traces of Dante. Then we're going to go on and talk about his biography and have a few extracts from bits and pieces that he wrote and finish up then full circle with um, some other places in Florence where again there's a Dante connection should you wish to go on a full Dante day or weekend. You'll know where to look. So we've talked already about the painting in the cathedral in which he features so strongly and which is, of course, based on his most famous work, The Divine Comedy. Another church where you can find a very clear Dante connection is Santa Croce, because outside, if you stand facing the cathedral, outside on the left in the corner, you will see a massive great statue to Dante. It was put up in 1885, slightly ironically, because, of course, Dante had been exiled during his life. Um, but after he was dead, Florence decided um, that they wanted to keep a memory of him. This statue was erected a few years after the unification of Italy, I think probably in the spirit of um, all things Italian and celebrating Italian culture now that it was one country. There's a little plaque not very far from the cathedral, which is called the Sasso di Dante, which means Dante's seat or Dante's stone. If you want to find that, if you start in the Piazza del Duomo and perhaps use a map, look, find uh, the Piazza delle Palatoli and the Via dello Studio. And between the two of them, there's a plaque on one of the houses which faces the cathedral and on it are written the words Sasso di Dante. It's thought that this was the spot in where he used to sit. Remember when he was um, alive in Florence, that was the time when the cathedral was being built, and it's thought that he used to sit there watching the work going on. He does actually make a reference to doing exactly this in one of his works, the Vita Nova, which translates as New Life, and in that he's reminiscing about how he used to sit in the city and think about Beatrice, the young lady whom we'll come back to in a little while, that with whom he fell madly, passionately in love. I think it may well be true. Um, there's certainly um, a line in one of Dante's works called the Vita Nova, which translates as New Life, in which he does talk about sitting and reminiscing. This is what he wrote. Io mi sedea in parte nella quale I used to sit in a certain spot where, ricordandomi di lei, I could think or I could remember her. Another place where you can see uh, something of him is uh, in the Palazzo Vecchio, in the uh, Piazza della Signoria. In that museum, you can find Dante's death mask. And also, throughout the city, there are plaques on the walls in various places with quotations from his work. So you really do get the impression that Florence is very proud to be associated with Dante di Alighieri. And it certainly is true that he was a native of Florence. He was born there in 1265 and he grew up there and was educated there at least to start with. It's thought that his family had fallen rather on hard times and wasn't very well off, but they still made a big effort to have him well educated. 
to the point, in fact, where he was able to go off to the University of Bologna in 1285. He spent approximately two years there. He didn't study literature, in fact, he studied law. But the University of Bologna was in fact Europe's very first university, it's the oldest one, um, and of course it will have been a place where he will have been able to socialise with artists and writers, and it's believed that that's probably where he first began to think about the idea of becoming a literary person, of devoting his life to literature rather than to the law. But in fact, before he ever got to Bologna, something very crucial happened in Dante's life in Florence when he was really very young. He was only nine, and that was the age at which he first met, met in inverted commas, uh, Beatrice, Beatrice, the little girl who was also only nine, and with whom he fell absolutely passionately in love, and whom he remembered fondly for the rest of his life. It's believed, in fact, that he actually only saw her twice, but that didn't dampen his ardour at all. She features in much of the writing that he was to go on to produce, and he used to think of her in terms uh, such as the following. He once wrote, quote, She appeared to be born not of mortal man, but of God. But in fact, much as he would have liked to, he didn't really get to know her very well. And at the age of 17, she was married off by her family to one Simone di Bardi, so somebody from one of the well-off families in Florence. In fact, it's believed that she died um, only a few years later at the age of 24. But she remained, for the rest of Dante's life, his idea of a beautiful woman, um, she she embodied the divine form of love that used to, was to reappear so often in the works that he wrote. He did begin to write as a young man, but in fact he also uh, turned his attention to politics. He joined committees, he was a member of councils, he had some public offices. But in fact his political involvement ended very badly because he picked the wrong side in a dispute that was running through Florence at the time. So the city was divided into the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. The Guelph faction were the side that Dante chose, but unfortunately they subdivided into the Black Guelphs and the White Guelphs. So the Black Guelphs represented the nobility and they were very keen that the Pope should play an active role in uh, ruling Florence, whereas the White Guelphs were much more people from the merchant classes. Um, they were more in favour of the idea that Florence should be independent Dante allied himself with the White Guelphs, and so when the Black Guelphs triumphed, he was exiled. Tragic though that was, um, you need to know that in fact originally he was sentenced to death, a sentence which he managed to escape by leaving Florence, and in fact ever after he didn't return. He led quite a vagrant life, he travelled to many places in Italy, there are records of him being in Verona and in Lucca, it's even thought that he got as far as Paris. Um, and eventually he returned to the city of Ravenna, um, lived there, and in fact that's where he died in 1321. He was buried in Ravenna, um, and you can visit his tomb there, and actually even today you'll often find that somebody has left red roses on it. So let's have a quick look at some of the works that Dante produced. Um, one of his early volumes was known as Rime, uh, which is the Italian for rhymes. It was a book of poetry. Um, and a few years after that, he produced a work called De Monarchia, which was about politics, about religion. 
It was there that he expounded some of the views that got him into trouble about what he thought about the church and the emperor and who should be in charge. Um, more cheerfully, another work that he produced was called Il Convivio, the convivial, or often the English translation is The Feast. So that was a prose work with lots of his meditations on life, um, some of them cheerful, some of them on more uh, worrying topics, such as the theme of exile. Then there's his work called La Vita Nuova, New Life, which we've mentioned. That's got a lot of poems and prose in it dedicated to Beatrice. It's all about ideal love. It's got a very mystical tone. Um, and also it does reflect the love between man and God. And this is where he referred to Beatrice as being the perfect creature in an imperfect world. Another work which had um, a major effect was called De Volgare Eloquentia. Um, and in this work, he actually did something quite different. He wrote in Italian. He wrote in his own Tuscan dialect. Of course, it would have been much more usual for writing to have been produced in Latin. That was the language of scholars. But Dante decided to experiment with the idea. Could you write literature in the language that you actually spoke every day? And that meant that when he got to his what was going to be his most famous work, La Divina Commedia, um, that too was written in the Tuscan dialect. So it was written in what you might call the language of the street. But because it ended up being so widely read, it became a vehicle for spreading Dante's form of Italian across the rest of Italy and, of course, eventually on into the rest of Europe and across the world. And it played a, quite a major part, really, in the development of the spoken language as the language of literature and led, in fact, to the development of modern Italian as spoken today. So although you could call, call it a linguistic success, it was, of course, for its literary value that it was particularly appreciated. A long, long work, 14,000 lines long, in fact, and divided into three main sections, each of which had 33 cantos, one on Inferno, Hell, one on Purgatoria, Purgatory, and one on Paradiso, Paradise. With the 333s adding up to 99, um, Dante added a prologue so that the whole thing has a 100 cantos or a 100 sections. And the hero of the whole thing is Pilgrim, um, who's thought to be Dante's alter ego, and it describes the journey of Pilgrim through hell, through purgatory, on to reach heaven. So it's the story of man's journey to redemption, a topic of great interest, of course, in medieval times. So if we start for a moment uh, with the first section, Inferno, it's 33 cantos. Uh, this tells the story of Dante being led through the circles of hell by the poet Virgil, obviously an ancient Latin poet. And the two of them see some of the terrible things that happen to the sinners who are condemned to hell. It's often thought that the Inferno is in fact the, the most exciting um, of the three sections. It's got some very graphic descriptions, certainly. Um, I think because God isn't in hell, Dante perhaps didn't feel he had to be too pious and he felt free to make hell very colourful and lively. And actually, one of the other things that he did, which would have amused the people of the time, perhaps more than it amuses us, is he put in his version of hell people based on real people who actually lived in Florence at the time. So an example of that would be Francesca da Rimini, who was a real lady, very known for a scandalous story that she was connected with. She was married. Um, it's thought probably not very happily married. 
and unfortunately she fell in love with her husband's younger brother, a man called Falinata, and this of course was hugely scandalous and Dante decided to mention this in his um, section on hell as an example of the sort of thing that lead, could lead to you ending up there. There were also more general sinners, sort of grouped together under things like gluttony and blasphemy, and there was a group of people who very much do represent medieval Florence, and that would be the usurers. They were all condemned to hell too, according to Dante. Usury, of course, was the practice of lending money to other people um, at a high rate of interest, and it was deemed to be sinful. You were, if you had money, um, it was deemed to be thought wrong to make more money by lending it to people who had none and making their lives very difficult by charging heavy interest. Um, and these people were uh, looked down upon and thought to be sinners. So there they are in Dante's hell. I'll read you just a very short little extract from Canto 3 from the Inferno section in which he describes how terrible circumstances were for the people who were there. So, quote... Here, sighs and lamentations and loud cries were echoing across the starless air, so that, as soon as I set out, I wept. Strange utterances, horrible pronouncements, accents of anger, words of suffering, voices shrill and faint, and beating hands, all went to make tumult that will whirl forever through that turbid, timeless air. So a quick modern translation would be on the lines of it was a terrible place and people were never going to get out. Dante uses a line a bit later on that talks about eternal and eternal I shall endure. There's going to be no hope for this. Of course, hope is coming in the shape of Beatrice in a minute, but for the moment he thinks he can't get out. And then comes the most famous line from the whole work, which if you know any Dante at all, it'll be the, word, the sentence that you've heard, or perhaps you've heard it and you didn't realise it came from here. And that's the line that reads, All hope abandon, ye who enter here. In the second section, the one on purgatory, things cheer up quite radically because Beatrice appears and offers to lead Pilgrim on through to heaven. So the section is called in Italian Purgatoria, and I'm going to read you a little extract from the ninth canto of that section in which um, Dante describes Pilgrim arriving at the gates of heaven and pleading with the angels to be let in. So this is what he writes there. I threw myself devoutly at his holy feet, asking him to open out of mercy. But first I beat three times upon my breast. Upon my forehead he traced seven peas with his sword's point and said, When you have entered within, take care to wash away these wounds. And then in the next little bit, the angel takes out two keys, a golden one and a silver one, with which he's able to open the gates leading to the mountain of purgatory. And then in the third section, finally, Pilgrim gets to Paradiso, or to heaven. On his way there, he sails through space. He passes the planets, on some of which the saints are living. He becomes aware of God in all his glory, and then he returns to earth to write the poem. So a, th a last um, little extract. This comes from practically the end of the whole thing. This is from verse 31 of the Paradiso section in which uh, Pilgrim is thanking Beatrice because she has saved him. She has led him through purgatory and brought him into heaven. And this is how he thanks her. Quotation. Oh, lady, you in whom my hope gained strength, you who for my salvation have allowed your footsteps to be left in hell, in all the things that I have seen, 
I recognise the grace and benefit that I, depending upon your power and goodness, have received. You drew me out from slavery to freedom by all those paths, by all those means that were within your power. So there you have it, an introduction to Dante's Divine Comedy. A comedy, I think, in the sense that it has a happy ending. Um, I don't think you'll find many jokes in it. So uh, if that's what you're looking for, I suggest you search elsewhere. But uh, if you want to be acquainted with um, something which is definitely thought of today as being a world masterpiece and find out about a book that laid the foundations for literature and indeed the Italian language itself became famous all over the country and eventually all over the world and led to the uh, use of Latin as a literary language um, being downscaled and the use of the languages that people actually spoke in everyday terms becoming the language in which you could also write wonderful literature. For all those reasons, Dante's Divine Comedy is a work that should be remembered today. So for the final section, I'd like to go back to thinking about Florence itself and to look for a few more places in which Dante or traces of him can be found even today. So the first one would be the Baptistery, the building next door to the cathedral. Um, Dante was christened here, just like all the other babies born in Florence when he was. Um, and it's also a building to which he hoped to be invited back at some point because other ceremonies were held there and Dante rather hoped that he would receive a poet's crown. Um, but in fact, he was exiled before this ever happened. So sadly, that didn't take place. The cathedral next door can be associated with him in that we know that its construction started um, in 1296, a few years before Dante was exiled, which happened in 1301. So we know that he would have sat and watched the beginnings of it being built. Although, of course, he wouldn't have known it anything like it is today because it was nowhere near finished by the time of his death, never mind by the time he was exiled. A little church that we haven't mentioned yet is called the Church of Santa Margarita di Kerci, which is a 12th century building, which is quite close to the uh, Piazza del Duomo. So if you look for a road called Via dello Studio, it takes you to Via del Corso, and underneath an archway, the Via Margarita, and if you pass through that, there you will find, it's quite small, so it's easy to miss, but there's a little church there known as the Church of Santa Margarita di Kerci. It's the church in which Dante first saw Beatrice and fell in love with her, Beatrice Portinari. They were both there at a service and he remembered her, and she became his lifelong muse. It's also thought that uh, Beatrice's father, Folco Portinari, is buried here. And although there's a commemorative plaque on the wall which says that uh, Beatrice is buried here, that's actually thought to be quite unlikely these days. It's known that she married into the Bardi family and they had their own family tomb in a cloister in a different church. And so it's almost certain that she would have been laid to rest there alongside her husband and her husband's family. But the place in this little church, Santa Margarita, which is said to be her tomb, is constantly covered by flowers anyway. Visitors come along, they leave flowers, they leave, leave notes, they leave letters, even sometimes asking her for help with their love lives. She's deemed to be a symbol of pure and everlasting love. So if you have problems on that front and you want to ask for help, you can come along to Santa Margarita and leave a note for Beatrice. Uh, this same church is also the building in which Dante 
married. He married somebody else, Gemma Donati. Um, they were betrothed by their families when he, they were very young. Dante was only nine or ten, so around about the same time when he first saw Beatrice, in fact. And the wedding ceremony took place in this little church, which is, of course, not very far at all from uh, the house or the street in which it's believed he grew up. Another building which has a connection to Dante's history is the Bargello. Of course, these days it's an art uh, and sculpture gallery. We'll be coming back to that in a later episode. But during Dante's time, it was the headquarters of the City Council of Florence. And it was there that his trial was held and where he was sentenced to exile. And actually, centuries later, in 2008, it's also the place, here in the very same Bargello, where the City Council of Florence passed a motion rescinding Dante's sentence. So Florence apologising for having exiled him centuries earlier and reclaiming him very much as somebody they're very, they're very proud of. And as part of the museum, which is mainly devoted to sculpture, there is a fresco by Giotto, which um, has Dante in it. It just sh shows him in paradise. The Palazzo Vecchio, the place where his death mask can be seen, is another place where Dante is known to have taken part in city assemblies, probably did some of the politicking that got him into trouble in the end, um, in the dispute between the Guelphs, the Black Guelphs and the White Guelphs. In some of Dante's writing, he does actually mention the Piazza Signoria. He, he writes about the days when it used to be a place where some of the Ghibelline houses were. And he writes about the time when the Guelphs triumphed over the Ghibellines and demolished many of their houses and used the space to build their new palazzo. These days, of course, it's known as the Palazzo Vecchio because it was superseded by other palaces. But in Dante's day, it was the new palace. If you go into Santa Maria Novella, so the big church quite near the train station, and find a part of that known as the Strozzi Chapel, so a chapel built and paid for by the Strozzi family, you'll find frescoes in there which depict paradise and hell and are painted very much after the story um, that Dante wrote. Another little church, also quite near uh, the Via Dante, is the Church of San Martino, it actually predates Dante, it dates back to the 10th century, but so it would have been there when Dante lived in that corner and he certainly would have known it very well. And it was a church that dedicated itself to helping the poor. Obviously there will always have been poor people in uh, Florence, but in this era there particularly were others who were made poor because they were bankrupted, um, perhaps because of the doings of some of the bankers, who knows. And if they were too ashamed to beg, perhaps they'd been better off, they didn't know where to put themselves, they didn't want to beg, what they could do was come along to San Martino Church, which was known as the Church of the Little Candle, because there's a niche outside the door in which candles were lit. And the message they were sending was they were intended to be a reminder to anybody passing who did have money, to the wealthier citizens, to say to them, look, could you leave donations here to help the poor? And then the poor, of course, would know that the, uh, the donations were there and they could come along and ask to be given some of them. Dante would have been very acquainted with all of this. And in fact, it's led to an expression in, still used in modern day Italian, where uh, the English translation would be to be reduced to the little candle. It means you haven't got any money. You've been reduced to having to come along and see if by the little candle any money had been left that you could have. 
And the the phrase in Italian, if you're interested, is essere to be ridotti, reduced, a lumicino, to the little light or the little candle. Santa Croce, we've already talked about the statue outside, um, but there's a memorial to Dante inside as well. As I mentioned earlier, he died in Ravenna, he was buried there, and actually there was a, a long long and ongoing dispute which lasted for centuries between the cities of Florence and Ravenna because Florence wanted Dante's body to be returned to them so that they could bury it there, probably in Santa Croce. Um, But Ravenna kept refusing. I think probably they knew that it brought people to their city to know that Dante was buried there. And they also used the argument that if the city of Florence had exiled Dante, then how unfair was it that they were now claiming his remains? So they refused and refused. And this went on until 1829, when finally, I think the city of Florence accepted that this was never going to happen. And so they had a monument to Dante built inside the Santa Croce church in the Buonarroti chapel. They asked uh, Stefano Ricci to design it. And it's a statue which shows the poet looking very pensive. Um, And there's a quote from the Divine Comedy there. uh, The words, Honorate l'altissimo poeta. So, in honour of the greatest poet. And there's a sculpture also of a figure of poetry looking very disconsolate. Whether because Dante has been lost to us because he died, or perhaps partly because Dante has been lost to Florence because he's been buried in Ravenna and Ravenna won't give him back. I'm not quite sure. But you do get the sense from the Santa Croce guide that actually uh, they're not that keen on this, this monument. Bizarrely, they refer to it, in the English version anyway at least, as, quote, an unpleasant work. So you do wonder whether they're, that's sour grapes rather than they're thinking, well, we've got the monument, we'd much, really much rather have Dante's body. It isn't actually made all that clear that Dante isn't actually buried there. It's kind of implied that maybe he is. If you don't ask too many questions, you won't be told. Um, so when you go to look at it, you'll know better. You're looking at the monument, but not actually at the place where his remains are today. And just to finish off then with one last place, and that's the house in the Via Dante Alighieri, which is known as the Casa di Dante, Dante's house. Although I think it does have to be admitted that they're not entirely sure uh, that he actually used to live there. He certainly lived in that road, um, but whether it was actually that house we don't know. But anyway, it's been turned into a museum. This was done actually in the 19th century, so it's not as ancient as possibly it looks. Um, but certainly in there, although it's quite small, there are some interesting things. There are lots of different copies of the Divine Comedy, for example, some of which have um, illustrations by Botticelli. There are portraits, there are reproductions, um, and generally things which represent, sorry, which celebrate Dante's life. And just outside in the square, there's a marble plaque um, which lists all the monuments which existed in Dante's day. So if you want to have a good look at places that he definitely would have known, you can read that list. Um, And one thing mentioned on it, which I haven't actually mentioned yet, is something called the Torre della Castagna, which means Chestnut Tower. A famous little spot, which is mentioned, in fact, in section three, so the Paradiso section of the Divine Comedy. Okay, so that concludes what I really wanted to say about Dante. I hope I've given you some idea of who he was and what he wrote and why he's famous and some idea of where you can go in today's Florence if you want to do a little Dante trail all of your own and find some places uh, which where he's remembered. 
or even in some cases, which we know that he actually knew himself. I think it'd be fair to sum him up as Italy's most famous poet, to remember his major contributions to literature and to the Italian language, and also, in fact, to remember that he, his stories, particularly the Divine Comedy, have been represented ever since in many, many works of art. So he's to be found all over the world, in fact, in that context as well. Okay, so next episode, um, we're going to move on to Santa Croce um, and talk about the history of the building a little bit and some of the very many famous people who are buried there. Um, We'll have a look at some of the artwork that's most famous that's connected with it. And it'll be a chance also to come back to the floods which happened in 1966 because Santa Croce was was the church that was perhaps most affected by the floods because of its position down near the river um, and it's become a sort of a memorial in some ways to the fact that Florence has recovered um, and that most of the artwork, much of the artwork that was destroyed has been restored. So all of that to look forward to but for the moment um, thank you very much indeed for listening um, and I'm just going to sign out in Italian style as usual by saying grazie, arrivederci. (laughs) 